electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Ahead this hour, ongoing supply shortages, a worsening gas crisis in the U.K., debt and power problems plaguing China, and an imminent government shutdown here in the U.S. Is the recent rebound in stocks really just setting a trap for investors? We will discuss the latest on that first. And speaking of a government shutdown, Steeple's Brian Gardner says the risk of that happening is increasing as the chance of a U.S. debt default decreases. What he says the Democrats need to get done and what that means for markets. And empty store shelves, a big bet on beauty, and a rare negative call on Amazon. It's all coming up in a retail edition of Rapid Fire a little bit later on. But let's begin with today's market action. I'll run you through some numbers where the Dow was up 263 points at the session highs. We're hanging on to a 90-point gain here, quarter percent higher. The Dow is the only of the major ones in the green today. The Nasdaq is the biggest lagger, down eight-tenths of a percent or 123 points right now. The energy sector is getting a ton of attention today as prices spike for the fifth straight session. Both Brent and WTI climbing about 2% today. But look at WTI crude, now over $75 a barrel, just a huge snapback that we've seen just the last couple of uh, weeks, if you want to call it that. The energy spider also trading up nearly 4% today. Brent prices the highest since last, I'm not sorry, not last October. Brent the highest since October of 2018. The XLE up nearly 4% today. We are going to have more on the energy trade later. Look at the 10-year note. You just heard Scott talking about it. Just a hair below 150 right now. Of course, we were over that level a little bit earlier on. We've backed off just a touch. If you wonder what this spike here was all about, it was the better-than-expected durable goods report at 8.30. I think it was about triple what people were expecting on the month. Good pace for durable goods orders, good demand uh, trends for the U.S. economy. We're going to talk to Steve about that in just a second. Is the Finergy trade from the first quarter of 2021 back on? Banks are climbing because of this move higher in bond yields today. The financial ETF up one and a quarter. Wells Fargo sitting it out. But Bank of America, J.P. Morgan and Citigroup all up in the range of one and a half to two and a half percent. And as I mentioned, for more on this durable goods number of these bond moves and all the latest uh, on the minds of investors today, Steve Leisman is here with more for us. Steve? Yes, everything in one minute and 15 seconds, a strong beat on durable goods driven by aircraft, but also showing that businesses in August continue to invest. We've had some good numbers here. Business investment up nearly 14% year over year. August marked a string of strong monthly gains with only one decline. That goes back to May of 2020. So amid all this COVID uncertainty, businesses have continued to invest. That bodes well for the future. Communications equipment and fabricated metals and appliances in August all did well. Now, the 10-year yield, Kelly just talking about it, other treasuries marching higher amid better economic reports, a sense that inflation could hang around longer because of those supply chain disruptions, and talk for, about tapering from the Fed. It's just below the 150 level, near where it was, you should be reminded, amid reopening optimism back in the spring. That would have been back in March. Fed Governor Lael Bramer saying just moments ago that employment is a bit short of the bar needed to taper, but that it may be met soon. She added that, hey, if the Fed's going to taper, 
you should not take any information about rates and increasing rates from the taper decision. Earlier in the day, New York Fed President John Williams saying tapering may soon be warranted, assuming the economy continues to improve. He expects 2% inflation next year and even points out he sees signs of inflation moderating now. The recovery, he says, shows solid momentum, but a full recovery, Kelly, will take time. But Steve, how about this personnel move? Eric Rosengren retiring, that means that I don't know when they have to have the seat filled by, but you have the chair himself. You have at least one or two of the others whose seats have to be filled or announced in the coming months. So all of a sudden now a fourth, I think. I mean, this could really change the politics for the Fed, right? Yes. Well, part of it is that the Fed, as you know, Kelly, changes anyway. At least the voting members of the president uh, in the uh, the voting, the president voting members will change. And Rosengren was going to be a voter next year. So uh, we don't know who will fill that slot right now. There was a first vice president who will take over. Eric Rosengren uh, citing health issues, saying that uh, he will resign September 30th instead of planned June of 2022, when he would have to have retired because of uh, hitting the 65-year age uh, limit there. Um, But also Eric Rosengren was among those who have been mentioned in the conflict of interest discussions Mm -hmm. that we've been having regarding Eric Rosengren buying uh, mortgage-backed securities while the Fed was buying and making multiple trades in that he had said as of September 30th, he would be selling all those positions. Now he will be resigning. But his replacement is a Boston Fed matter. How does it work? Yes, the Boston Fed Board of Directors will meet decide who to replace him. Right now, that person is Kenneth Montgomery, who is the interim uh, president, and they will be, and it has to be approved uh, by Washington or by the Washington Board of Governors. Very, very interesting. Again, the tons of ramifications <clears throat> of the Fed the, through this historic taper and, and so forth. Steve, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Our Steve Leisman with the very latest. Now, while the Dow just touched its highest level in nearly three weeks today, it's still on track for its worst month since January. The S&P and Nasdaq are having their worst month since last October. And Morgan Stanley is warning that anyone buying into last week's rally is in for trouble, saying valuations are too frothy. The global supply chain is a mess. The government is on a crash course with a shutdown. And Fed tapering is just around the corner. Does my next guest agree? Joining me now is David Bonson. He is chief investment officer at the Bonson Group. Are you more sanguine, David, or or how do you think things are shaping up here? Well, it depends on the timeline they're talking about. Mike Wilson, who wrote that report, I worked with him at Morgan Stanley, and uh, he tends to lean negative quite Mm -hmm. a bit. I think he's made a similar call to this about 15 times lately. And like all people pointing out pretty logical things that don't look good all the time in the markets, the markets have had an opinion of their own. And so uh, I wouldn't make any short-term decisions around that report from Morgan Stanley. Um, I I hopefully don't have clients that are making short-term decisions at all, though. You know, we want to be able to have a little longer-term view. And so that's where the sanguine comes from, is that we do believe through time the way that uh, particularly our dividend orientation is positioned will do quite well. But as far as the markets needing an excuse to have a correction or some downside volatility, there's plenty of excuses out there to choose from. There's a ton of investors, David, breathing a huge sigh of relief to see financials and energy back in the leadership. You know, people who were overpositioned, looking for rates to finally move to the upside and so forth. Is this really sustainable, though? And, and should the trades remain married? I mean, on the energy side, I see that Chevron is one of your picks, but I just have to wonder how high oil prices can remain, how much higher they can keep going. You know, maybe we've got a few more months of this ahead of ourselves, but if we start going back to 100 or over a barrel, I have to imagine there's going to be long-term demand destruction. There's going to be screaming from policymakers, expanded supply. 
you know, why is Chevron a name you want to bet on for the long run? Well, our thesis on Chevron has absolutely nothing to do with the price of oil. And so there's sort of two different questions there. I agree with you completely. Mm -hmm. Oil prices getting near $100 are not good for the energy sector. It drives a lot of margin for the short period of time. But as you exactly pointed out, long-term demand destruction is a real phenomenon. There is sort of a sweet spot in this supply-demand crux. I suspect it's between 60 and 80. We're at the upper end of that range now, back above 75. Chevron makes an awful lot of money at $60 oil. So the price of the commodity is not the thesis. It's that the valuation of the company is extremely low relative to its normalized free cash flow. And, and Chevron is a 5.5% dividend payer in a weak part of the market, weaving as plenty of, of, of road ahead. Uh, but you also have to remember the natural gas story and the downstream oh, yeah. story. These are integrated companies. Chevron has a lot of ways they can make money regardless of the oil price. No, and uh, this is going to be such an important story. I feel like I could talk to you about only that. I want to mention you also like 3M, uh, LYB, Blackstone here. So there, there are a number of other things going on. But just to take the example of Chevron for a moment, then, is it that you don't think the oil price is relevant or that you think it's going to stay in the 60 to 80 dollar range? Because, again, the the yield, like you said, five and a half percent is tantalizing. But if you look at the size of the energy sector in the S&P 500, it is it has not recovered from where it has dwindled to. In other words, you just have to wonder if investors really see a lot of potential here for strong returns in the years ahead. Well, plenty of investors don't, which makes us like it even more. So the, the fact that there's a sentiment issue is an argument in my favor. Mm -hmm. I don't like to bet on things that all the sentiment is already positioned there. But by the way, Chevron has basically doubled from its low point of COVID and energy is a lower percentage of the S&P than it was at that point. Mm. How is that even possible? Because the overall market has moved even more. So there's a sort of relative weighting in this as well. But we're pure bottom-up people, Kelly. And when we look at the Chevrons and some of the energy names, we particularly like Midstream, we just believe that it's a story that American supply is understated right now. We need more production. And you're exactly right. If oil prices continue going higher, I don't care what people's political orientation is. They're going to demand more U.S. production of oil which I happen to think is cleaner and better for the environment uh, than Middle Eastern producers anyways. But at the end of the day, we have a, a story here of a company that has a very important place in the American energy narrative that I just think is underpriced. And the sentiment and some of the technical and extraneous factors can't ever change the fundamentals of cash flow generation. Yeah. They have really reduced their cost structure. And so we like the profit margins going forward as well. I mean, and we've seen the performance of, you know, going back to the Altrias of the world after that era of divestment. It sort of speaks for itself. Oh, yeah. So we'll see if this is the same story or not. David, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Hope to check back in soon. Thank you. Tom. David Bonson is Thanks the CIO of the Bonson Group. As he, uh, he mentioned, Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, uh, the man behind the cautious call, will appear on Closing Bell at 4 p.m. Eastern time to discuss it, talk about why he thinks this rebound is a trap for investors. Meantime, we've got a news alert on Coinbase. Kate Rooney is here with the story as the shares move near session lows down about one and a half percent. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Coinbase is taking on payroll. The crypto company announcing just now plans to let users deposit any percentage of their paycheck into Coinbase accounts directly. That can be in cryptocurrency or U.S. dollars. They say they'll convert paychecks into crypto from U.S. dollars for zero fees as well. In a blog post, the company talking about this really removing a step in funding 
some of those crypto accounts and they talk about instant access to the crypto economy. It also talks here about financial services as the next leg in that digital economy. So beyond just trading, really looking to be what they call the most trusted full suite of crypto first financial services. Coinbase, of course, best known for offering Bitcoin and crypto trading, which is heating up. There's a lot of competition there with new entrants like Robinhood, Square. You've got SoFi there as well. Unclear how many of Coinbase's 68 million users will want to put their paychecks directly into Coinbase or into crypto, for that matter, as it's pretty volatile. But it is a big move for traditional banking. This is really the first move we've seen from a pretty big crypto company, looking a lot more like a bank. And it comes at a pretty tense time for crypto regulation. SEC Chairman Gary Gensler paying a lot more attention to the asset class lately, talking about it just last week and the need for more oversight there. And Coinbase just last week canceling other plans to launch a high-interest crypto lending product after the SEC threatened to sue Coinbase over that product. Kelly. And very interesting to see that this is their next move now on direct deposits. Kate, thank you very much. Our Kate Rooney with the latest there. Coming up, the stage is set for a high-stakes week in Capitol Hill with key legislation and a potential shutdown hanging in the balance. Can House Democrats strike a deal to deliver a win for the president's economic agenda? Plus, fuel stations are running on empty in the U.K., where the British government is considering calling in the troops to help deliver gas. We'll take a closer look at the shortage and the fallout for the global energy space. As we head to break, take a look at shares of Wells Fargo. You saw them in the red earlier on. They were down almost 3%, about 2% now, on a report that the bank is being sued over its foreign exchange services. Again, Wells Fargo down about 2%. We'll bring you more details as we get them. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. President Biden receiving his third dose of the COVID-19 vaccine just moments ago, in line with the CDC and FDA's decision to back booster Pfizer shots for all Americans 65 and older and those with underlying medical conditions. The president is 78 years old. He got a second Pfizer dose in January, said he had no side effects. The latest figures from the CDC show that 77 percent of the adult population in the U.S. has received at least one dose. So again, a big boost by the president for boosters here. And this is a make or break week for President Biden, who is betting on his domestic agenda to shore up support for Democrats ahead of the midterm elections next year. But will party infighting over infrastructure and spending, plus the risks of a government shutdown and a debt default, jeopardize those hopes? Joining me now is Brian Gardner. He is the chief Washington policy strategist at Stiefel. Brian, it's great to have you. Your note caught my attention because you think a shutdown is getting more likely. Why? 
Yeah, I, actually, Kelly, I, I did think that um, because I, I thought that Democrats were not taking Mitch McConnell's threat seriously. Uh, going back to the summer, McConnell was saying that if Democrats wanted to um, raise the debt ceiling, they were going to have to do it on their own, that Republicans weren't going to go along and they could, that Democrats could do it in reconciliation. And that was not being taken seriously. And into the last week, the debt ceiling and a temporary government spending bill to avoid a shutdown were being combined. And they're still technically combined. Um, but I now it seems like Democrats have realized that McConnell wasn't bluffing that Republicans aren't going to vote for to increase the debt ceiling. And so they're going to have to find another way to uh, to extend government funding and avoid a shutdown. And I think I, I'm growing confident through the weekend that 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 the the exit strategy on that probably is better than I had previously thought. So let's actually let me bring in Tony Fratto as well. He's on the phone with us. He's the Han- Hamilton Place Strategies founding partner. Tony, hang on one second, because Brian, I just want to clarify why mm-hmm. you think it's actually looking better that we avoid a shutdown now? Because I think Democrats decided that, one, McConnell was not bluffing, and so there was not going to be a Republican vote to increase the debt ceiling. And that given everything that's going on in Washington and with the administration, situation on the border, situation with COVID, situation coming out of Afghanistan, and trying to pass these huge... Uh, spending bills, the two infrastructure bills, that a shutdown, some people might blame Republicans in the short term, but it's not in Democrats' best interest to uh, to play that game. So I, I think Democrats kind of figured out what McConnell was doing and that he wasn't bluffing and that they decided it's not in their best interest to try and pin this on Republicans, that it actually would hurt the administration and hurt Democrats. So they've decided to pivot into a, a shorter term spending bill. Pivot into a shorter-term spending bill, Tony. All right, we'll, so- we'll, we'll go back to this in a couple of weeks. I mean, this is this will be a kick the can down the the, sure. the road exercise that we'll revisit. And we've re- totally remembered these episodes from the past. Where there were times, you know, they would extend it for a couple of days or a couple of weeks, and we'd go over and over again. I mean, no, we all kind of hate talking about this every time we have government shut down, and everyone kind of rolls their eyes and goes, "Here, you know, here we go again, Tony." So, boil this down. Then, if Brian's right, and this is kind of a short-term, you know, kick the can down the road issue. Yeah. Now, where does that leave us uh, for the likely sequence of events here? Yeah, that's right. Look, I I think Brian's right on this, by the way. I think I think um, it's in neither party's best interest right now to get a shutdown. I think it's 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 would be more damaging for Democrats than Republicans. The 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 hard deadline that cannot be you can't kick the can down the road on for very long is the debt ceiling. And that will, again, become the the action for ultimate action forcing event on this. Right now, what they need is a little bit of time. Both parties need just a little bit of time, and it's going to be days, and it'll, I think it will trip into a week or two for, uh, for these guys to find the right price to avoid shooting the hostages. And the hostages right now are the reconciliation bill on the part of progressives and the infrastructure bill on the part of, uh, on the part of Democrats. And so finding a price on the reconciliation bill is what the task is over the next week to 10 days, and they need some breathing room to do that. And so I think the CR is going to, you know, they're going to have to do something like that over the weekend, this upcoming weekend to get through that. But Nancy Pelosi and Schumer need to show progress on getting closer to a number uh, that meets the standards of, of uh, uh, Kirsten Cinema and Mansion in the Senate. But the number, the Tony, that you're talking about, 
is way lower. Than, so so we've yeah. all been talking about this three and a half trillion dollar number. And you're saying the question is whether Mansion and Cinema can accept something in the two to two and a half trillion. What, what do you think the now number is? That's right. But let, let's be clear. There aren't there are not votes for three and a half trillion dollars in the House, let alone the Senate. Okay. So it, it is not it's not three and a half trillion dollars under no one's uh, you know, real uh, understanding of what's going on. Is it going to be three and a half trillion dollars? It's going to be less than there are a lot of Democrats in the House right now who cannot vote for a three and a half trillion dollar bill and won't and have signaled that. Now, they've been comfortable in letting Manchin and Cinema, uh, you know, take the flack on this and take the, you know, the, the public heat. But there are a lot of members whose names that most people haven't heard of in mm-hmm. places like Pennsylvania and elsewhere who cannot vote for three and a half trillion dollars. They're in very competitive districts. So quick final question, Brian, are, what happens with infrastructure in the meantime? I, I think this is kind of a kick the can down the road scenario, too. I, I think, you know, there's supposed to be a vote in the House on Thursday. I wouldn't be surprised if that gets delayed. To Tony's point, as senators try and coalesce around a, a number and a framework to buy Pelosi some time to convince the progressives not to block the other bill, mm. to get the centrists on board, you have these competing factions within the Democratic Party. And I do think that at the end of the day, they will get to a number at the lower end of Tony's range. Um, but they need time. They're not there yet. Got it. All right. So we'll check back in with you guys in a couple weeks. <laughs> See where Thank we you, are. <laughs> Brian Thanks, Gardner Kelly. and Tony Fratto. Really appreciate it, guys. Thank you very, very much. Still ahead, the biggest names in media and tech are in Beverly Hills for this year's Code Conference. We're going to go there live for a preview right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get a quick check on markets. The S&P really tells the story. It's down seven points or about a tenth of one percent. The Dow's to the upside. The Nasdaq is lagging today. That just reflects uh, what's going on with the sectors. Energy is leading as the traditional oil and gas players rally. We have tech and healthcare lagging. Energy up three and a half percent today, uh, while healthcare is actually underperforming tech. Healthcare is down one point four percent. Now, Facebook, let's home in on this one for a moment. It is slightly lower after the company said it's pausing its efforts to build a version of Instagram for kids. It was intended for kids ages about 10 to 12. The move comes after an investigation by the Wall Street Journal this month showing Facebook repeatedly found that Instagram is harmful to teens, especially to teenage girls. Uh, they've now shelved plans for Instagram for kids. Facebook shares are up about a tenth of a percent today. They are down 7% in September, putting them on pace for their first negative month since February and threatening Facebook's longest monthly winning streak ever. This is one to watch. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The FBI is reporting a record surge in murders across the U.S. last year. The number of killings rose by 4,900 to about 21,500. While the increase is the largest ever, the overall number of murders is still well below the record set in the early 90s. In Philadelphia, though, this year's murder tally topped 400 over the weekend, putting the city on track for a record number of homicides this year. And on the news, more on the rise in violent crimes of all kinds in the U.S. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Texas Republicans releasing a first draft of their new congressional map. Texas is the only state to gain two new congressional seats from last year's census. 
The map is likely to change over the coming weeks before being sent to Governor Abbott for his approval. And strong advance bookings for the new James Bond movie. Theater chain Cineworld says No Time to Die has the best pre-sales of any film since Avengers Endgame back in April of 2019. The movie rolls out in the U.S. next week. And Kelly, I imagine that Wolf will be first in line to see it. He should be in one of these films at this point. At this point, agreed. It's like the biggest booster. You could do a whole financial thing with him. You know, but he's going to hear about this. I think so. What are you guys talking about? Rahel, thank you very much. Holiday supply horrors. Beauty is an attractive bet. And the gap. All that and more is coming up in today's rapid fire in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for a special retail edition of Rapid Fire because there's a whole lot happening in this space. And here to help us break down the headlines today, Ike Borishow is senior retail analyst at Wells Fargo. Delano Sapporo is founder of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor. And of course, Courtney Reagan is here, CNBC senior retail reporter. We can't wait to dive into all of these topics. And first up, consumer confidence has been beaten down lately. But if you ask Ike and team over at Wells Fargo, the consumer remains very strong, but the supply chain can't can't keep up. And this is just ahead of the key holiday season. Their team releasing a note with findings from the annual consumer conference saying supply chains both internationally and domestically were the hot topics. Ike, this is my favorite part of the survey. You guys could literally see a backlog of container ships from your conference location. Here's where your most bullish carters up nearly 4 percent thread up as well. Bearish on Urban Outfitters and Stitch Fix. Uh, Elaborate here. I want to hear about these ships. Yeah, no, it's th- thanks, Kelly. So it's really interesting. So the consumer demand has never been as robust as it is. And, and the companies at our conference were saying as much. The issue is the supply chain. It, it continues to worsen. The visibility into holiday is getting tougher. Companies are talking about potentially needing to cancel orders. So you're air freighting goods. It's costing you a lot of money. Now we're worried about maybe leaving sales on the table. So you have this group which is an early cycle group, and we're clearly not early early cycle anymore. Now you've got rising costs, inflation, you've got a lapse stimulus and demand into next year. These are all the reasons why my group has been pretty challenged over the past couple of months. Yeah, and it's, it's, I know, Delano, you agree that the consumer's in a pretty good position. I, since we're not going to have time to talk about Gap specifically, they are a name you're bullish on. Tell me about some of the stocks, Delano, that you would be picking up here that you think can benefit from a, a really difficult environment like this. I mean, it's it's a it's a high-class problem, but it's still a problem if people want your stuff and you can't get it on shelves. Exactly right, Kelly. And that's the problem that we're seeing a lot of management talk about. Is they have the labor issues where there's cost and, and rising wages, and obviously the supply chain issues we mentioned uh, that are still persistent, that's still going to be persistent for a while. So this is the time when I want to look at retailers that are, one, doing a great job in the e-commerce space and direct-to-consumer, also highly vertically integrated. I know you talked to, did not really talk to specific names, but those are areas that I want to focus on is they're able to pass on and also focus on their high-margin areas, right? So a lot of the companies that are focused on their high-margin brands, high-margin areas, you really want to stick to those companies in times where you're seeing these costs rise. Yeah, so we've been talking about Carter's, obviously a big play on babies and kids there. Uh, I know, Delano, you like Old Navy and Athleta, one reason to be bullish on Gap, uh, perhaps. But I want to circle back to ThreadUp, because I've been wondering, if you have such a problem getting new stuff on shelves, is it a reason to be bullish on some of the clothes recycling platforms? No, that's a, it's a great it's a great point you're making. It's a point we tried to make this morning. Look, people are having trouble getting product from Southeast Asia over here, air freighting, the boats, the congestion. Thread up, you know, everything that they get from a supply perspective comes from within the United States, from our closets. And by the way, what they're saying is 
they've got so much demand that they can't fulfill all of it. Right. So that's a good problem. It's the opposite of what you're hearing from these other companies. So to Delano's point, e-commerce is a growing area. These guys just added 150% capacity uh, via this DC. They're opening in Texas next year. And you're in that uh, sourcing environment, which favors them. So we, we, we totally agree. Courtney, can they gift wrap recycled Item. This is this is going to be. That's can a, can that I give someone right? <laughs> a bag from Thread Up or whatever? I, I know. You know, Kelly. I actually became a consumer myself mm. the first time for Thread Up. I literally mm. just opened a box. I mean, for baby clothes, it's like you can't beat it. They go through them so quickly, and it just seems to make sense. Exactly, and I know that's a big reason for the attraction of Carter's. Court, final word, just I'm curious, what are you hearing in terms of how bad it is? I think the Nike uh, issues really may put this front and center for everybody. How is it going to look? I mean, when we talked to you know sporting goods retailers here in the last few weeks, they say, okay, maybe your favorite jerseys won't necessarily be in stock, but other items will be fine. How are we supposed to know what there's going to be supply of and what there won't be? This is really tough, Kelly, and I think it's going to be hard for us to know in advance. I mean, if you just think about economies of scale, the bigger the retailer, the more likely they are to sort of make it work, to mitigate the problem, to figure it out, get it a different way, get it from a slightly different vendor so that the consumer doesn't see the shortages or those gaps in inventory as much as you might at a smaller retailer or if it's a an item at a retailer from a smaller vendor. Um, but I think that is going to sort of be the tricky p- part. And we're here from Nike because my, Nike is sort of reporting at an off time from all the other retailers, but it is going to be a theme for everyone reporting going forward. I did a story on Friday with a case study from Alex Partners, sort of following a pair of shoes to try to explain what's going on in the supply chain. And really the bottom line was it takes about 78% more time to get that same pair of shoes all the way through the supply chain to the shelf on consumers. And it costs about 36% more to that retailer. That's not the price that the consumer ultimately pays. Right. And that's, I think, a good example of the issues. I want to run through a couple of the names here that could be maybe case studies. Uh, Bath and Body Works and Amazon. Uh, Amazon, I want to spend a little more time on. So quickly on Bath and Body Works, Delana, where would you be? Atlantic Equities is initiating coverage with an overrate and an $82 price target. Are you bullish on a name like that, a mall-based retailer? Yeah, exactly. Near term, if you look at the price performance of the stock versus the broader market, the S&P, they've obviously outperformed the broader market. And I think they're in strong areas if you're talking about beauty and leisure, if you're talking about home improvement. We've seen demand for home improvement and different things as buying homes over the past summer that's been strong at highest levels than we've ever seen. So, But if you pull back the chart, right, you're looking at a five-year basis, only 18% for Bath and Body Works. So I think, you know, at some point we have to start re-rating and looking if, if this has kind of had its run and if it's going to re-rate back down to normalized levels if you're looking at, you mentioned Amazon and other areas where competition is increasing and selling everything versus more of those specialized areas. So yeah. it's an area where I'm not in, but I would kind of be cautious if you're someone that's in and look for a potential re-rate at some point. Ike, I don't know if you cover Bath and Body Works. Where would you be on the mall-based retailers generally? Are, are there any others that you'd want to let our investors know you're sort of especially bullish about if they're looking for the places to go this season? Well, we are bullish on Bath & Body Works. We have an outperform. Look, the great thing here is we just spent the first um, five minutes talking about sourcing and supply chain. Uh, this this play basically avoids Southeast Asia, 80% domestic sourcing for Bath wow. & Body Works. And two things I want to point out about BBWI, uh, it's a consumables business. I know it gets bucketed in with those apparel mall-based companies, True. but this is a consumables business with, the, with one of the highest margin structures in retail. Um, and I also, we forecast them to be carrying a couple extra billion 
of cash on their balance sheet as of next year. It's a lot of flexibility this company's going to have. It should trade like a dollar store or an off-pricer, which gets you a stock in the 80s, not the 60s. So we're actually pretty bullish. It's amazing what they've done with the fundamentally consumables business. Like you're talking about, you know, kind of the way the way that they command the multiples and the, you know, the competitors, the uh, set and all the rest of it is really interesting. Let's close things out with Amazon and see where everybody stands on this one because we've had a rare negative call this morning from Morgan Stanley, lowering their price target to $4,100, which is still 20% upside but it's all about wages and headcount. Amazon is planning to hire an additional 125,000 fulfillment workers on top of the 40,000 corporate and tech jobs they were looking for earlier this month. Amazon's average starting wage is now $18 an hour. Amazon shares have gone nowhere this year. They're only up about 3%. Courtney, they have huge needs uh, here. Can they even fulfill them? That is such a big question that I keep asking too, Kelly. I just don't know. We keep talking about what's going on in the labor market and sort of the available jobs with the skills available and the mismatch that's going on there. And we know this happens every year seasonally for lots of retailers, including Amazon. But obviously this year it's going to be even more of a struggle. It is a good idea to add those incentives wherever you can, whether it's pay or other kinds of bonuses or, or time off. I mean, you name it. But remember, a lot of these distribution centers, too, are not located in city centers, right? They're sort of off the beaten path. So that becomes another challenge is where are those workers? Where do they live? The ones that you're trying to attract to the distribution center. Zolano, are you a buyer of Amazon here? Yeah, I'm still I'm still long. I'm still holding. I think this is a stock that you always want a dollar cost average in. There's going to be times where where the stock re-rates, but I think you know, if you look obviously if you look at the past trajectory, it's it's up into the right over time. And I think one of the things that's you know folk, we should focus on here is as well is looking at this, the diversification of the business. One area we could also focus on is cloud, and they're still the market leader in cloud. And I think that's going to play a part um, as you're looking as companies looking to looking to be more flexible. And I think yeah. we can also talk about the rising cost pressures. That's going to be persistent for everyone across the board. When you talk about Amazon looking at that scale. And I think the scale is going to play a big part, as we mentioned earlier, into still being able to get everything to the end consumer. I think yeah. they have a great advantage there. And Ike, I'll close this out with you. If you could just offer a comment about what's going to happen with wage pressures and just the need for headcount into the holiday season. How is that going to affect just the retail experience broadly? Yeah, my, my companies are struggling, especially on the D.C. side, uh, to, to find labor, um, trying to bring uh, workers back into the labor force, it, it, it adds to the inflationary backdrop of retail, um, its wages, but then again, back on the supply chain, but also look at some of these commodities, cotton, I don't know if anyone's pulled up a chart of cotton in a long time, that, that's through the roof. So it just adds to the inflationary pressures, which is which is adding some weight um, um, to my group over the past three, three plus yeah, months. Normally, we'd all go, wow, look at the chart of cotton. It doesn't even crack like the top 25. Uh, given no everything that's going on. It's so wild. Such long-term ramifications for everything from technology to supplies and so much more. Just to try to get through this season first. Guys, thank you all. Really enjoyed it today. Ike Borshaw, Delano Sapporu, and Courtney Reagan in this retail edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, the Code Conference starts today at the Beverly Hills Hilton in Los Angeles. We're going to get a sneak peek live on the ground next. With crude oil hitting its highest level since mid-July, the energy sector is also on pace for its best month since February, led by Cabot, ConocoPhillips, and EOG. We'll dig into the supply chain concerns across the globe heading into the winter in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. The Code Conference kicks off today in Beverly Hills, bringing some of the biggest players in tech under one roof. This year's guest list runs the gamut from Elon Musk and Ted Sarandos to Gary Gensler and Margaret Vestager. Our John Fort is one of those names, and he's there with a preview of what we can expect this week. John? 
Yeah, I'm just one of the names talking to the names. But, yeah, you're right. Uh, Lisa Sue is going to be taking the stage in just, boy, you know, four hours or so from now. I'll be talking to her alongside Kara Swisher. And really, I think a theme, Kelly, is going to be uh, the acceleration out of the pandemic um, and during the pandemic, because we're certainly not out of it yet. And then the consequences uh, of all of that tech acceleration. And that's where, you know, kind of Gensler comes in. Also, Chris Krebs talking security, um, you know, Satya Nadella, as you mentioned. And then Elon Musk is sort of on both sides of that, right, with leading the electric car revolution um, at, at Tesla. But then at the same time, there's controversy over the uh, you know, driverless technology that he's pushing so hard. Some would say too hard. So uh, some accountability for tech and also some great possibilities on how tech might be able to move things forward, Kelly. What do you think about this Facebook move, John, the, the sort of reversal on Instagram for kids? Kelly, I don't think it's a reversal at all, because on the one hand, they're saying they're hitting pause on this Instagram for kids. But then at the same time, they say, well, we're going to go out and talk to stakeholders about how we can do this better. That sounds mm. like product development to me, or maybe a recognition that they hadn't built it right in the first place and certainly hadn't built the right PR strategy around it. They've been very defensive. They, they've been in this sort of uh, situation. They sound like Thanos, you know, I am inevitable, uh, talking about the inevitability of all the things that they want to do, but not necessarily emphasizing how they're going to make the world better with their products, which is usually what you want to see a tech company doing if you're an investor. Anyway. Well, maybe they are kicking the can down the road, to borrow a phrase from our uh, government shutdown discussion earlier. I appreciate that, John. Thank you for pointing it out. John Ford out at the Code Conference, and he'll have a lot more highlights throughout the week for us. Coming up, wild pictures out of the U.K. Over the weekend, as gas supplies run dry thanks to an ongoing trucker shortage. We'll talk to the state of energy around the world and why the ESG trend could be partly a reason why. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. Gas stations across England ran dry after a weekend of panic buying as supply chain issues triggered by a trucker shortage deepen. Energy supplies are also tight in China, with Beijing cracking down on electricity use, causing key supplies for Apple and Tesla to have halted production. And this energy crunch has prices surging to the highest levels in nearly three years. WTI, our U.S. crude, is up for a fifth straight day. The international Brent crude nearing 80 bucks a barrel. Natural gas up another 7 percent today and up 50 percent this quarter. Joining me now to discuss us is John Kilduff. He is the founding partner of Again Capital and a CNBC contributor. John, I have a, a simple question for you. Is energy going to go the way of lumber, which had a huge spike to the upside and collapsed, or is it going to stay permanently higher? No, Kelly, we always have uh, ups and downs, booms and busts in this market. It's a true commodity market, although lumber is probably the most extreme commodity uh, out there. If you ever want to get your head handed to you, try to trade that. I can, sure. just, I can tell you that right now. <laughs> but no, um, but we, we are in, in, in a phenomenon, I'll call it right now, where all energy molecules are becoming increasingly here. We have somehow, in a very short amount of time, gone from a period of relative oversupply to one of undersupply right now, especially as it relates to crude oil, which we can move around the world, and even more acutely for natural gas, yeah. which is really siloed to each and every country. And that was what was so peculiar about the fuel issues in Britain is that no one was warning about shortages of gasoline or diesel in their case. It was a truck driver issue. You know, the real shortages, if you want to call it that, are on the natural gas side. 
What's going to happen this winter? I mean, with prices already where they are, do they just continue to go parabolic until what? I mean, is this all going to somehow need to incentivize more production? I mean, imagine people gathering for the COP26 meeting next month where they're going to lay out, you know, these ambitious clean energy and climate goals. And people are going to be screaming about the price of fossil fuels and wondering to what extent policymakers are to blame. Well, I'll tell you, Kelly, I hope this uh, this is an early warning signal to them to be very careful. Uh, the energy mix is highly important, it's crucial, it's critical to the, to the global economy and the welfare of everyone. Uh, you know, we're, does, it, does us no good to save the planet if you're going to freeze to death in the winter for a lack of, of natural gas, for example? So this is becoming an increasingly uh, important issue because what you're already seeing from these pressures, these climate uh, change pressures, the ESG pressures, is that there's a chill in the industry. Uh, literally and figuratively, pardon the pun, but they're not rushing to drill. Uh, they are scuttling longer-term plans to drill for more oil and natural gas because of the pressures they're feeling. And that is making every thin barrel of oil, every molecule of gas that's in the pipeline, all the more valuable, all the more expensive, because there's a lot less behind it now. Yeah. And so we're, we're sowing the seeds of, of a real bad energy future. So I'm curious, obviously, we have a lot of liquefied natural gas supply here in the U.S. The U.S. is one of the biggest natural gas producers in the world. We have more options now to send that gas into global markets than ever. We haven't been in a situation where policymakers and politicians are used to the narratives that they bring out when oil is expensive and high. And we have the strategic petroleum reserve and all the rest of it. What are they going to do about natural gas? Do you think they come out and ban LNG exports or talk about it? Or, you know, I'm curious what political dynamic we should expect here in the U.S. And again, we're in a relatively better situation. It's everywhere else that the prices are up way higher than they are in our own country. And it seems to all come down to Russia. Where are their supplies? Well, you're right about the uh, the European and their dependent Europeans and their dependency on Russia. It's a, it's a heck of a bad place to be in. Uh, as far as the U.S. goes, you will definitely see uh, the idea that LNG exports should be halted this winter, uh, at least mentioned or touted, uh, because that's how tight things are likely to get. We're, we are we are ourselves. The United States is going into the upcoming winter with the lowest amount of natural gas in storage uh, since about 2014. And uh, we're going to be very tight. When we went through this the last time with natural gas, way back when in the 70s, as I was looking into it, um, it's, it, it caused schools to shut. It caused factories to shut. So everyone could basically shelter in place during that harsh 1978 winter wow. and, and keep them the available gas we had for heating homes. So this is going to be a major issue uh, this winter. What will probably happen, though, Kelly, much like we see all the time with gasoline, where, where, where the pricing – the worst case scenario that's priced in before the season right. will likely happen again. So we'll see another big spike, another rally here in natural gas prices as we get into late November, early December, early season cold snap. And then we fall potentially uh, like a cliff back down yeah. uh, in prices so we can reassess then where we're at in terms of overall supply and demand. And that's kind of the message, you know, and again, I hope we don't get to that point for our winter, for anyone else's winter, although in China, it's already at that point in parts of the UK, factory shutdowns and so forth. But for investors, John, who are thinking this is a sure bet, you know, fossil fuels are scarce, the prices are only going up, you know, I'm betting on that going in one direction. What would you say to them? How long do you think that trade can really persist? I'd say it's got at least another two years in it um, because and, and I'll tell you this, obviously, it's not a good look for a lot of portfolio managers to have these kind of stocks in them, but it also wasn't a good look to have cigarette companies, tobacco companies, or, or, or booze companies. But oil is going to be in that bucket 
but they do awfully well for you in terms of returns. And for the, in the energies, in case of energy, it's because they're going to have the last bit of what we need uh, at hand and be able to sell it at a, a very high and profitable market price going forward. A two, so two, two years, we'll see. I mean, again, these commodity super cycles can play out over a much longer time, but with fits and starts in the meantime. John, appreciate it. It's a great... Uh, As I get older, Kelly, they get shorter and shorter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even if they don't change in time. John Kilda from Again Capital. Thanks for Thank your you. time and uh, for the context. Today. We appreciate it. Still ahead, grocers are going to have to make more room in the alternative meat section. The new Beyond Meat products hitting shelves next month right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Beyond Meat up nearly 3% today as the company is set to launch chicken in grocery stores. Kate Rogers is here with the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Beyond announcing today its meatless chicken tenders are going to be available in select grocery stores in October, including Walmart, Harris Teeter, Giant Foods, and ShopRite. The tenders use faba beans as a protein source, and the company says they have about half the amount of saturated fat of a traditional chicken tender. Now, CEO Ethan Brown told me that the company is continuing to work on building out plant-based options for consumers so that if they're seeking an animal protein product, they'll also have a Beyond option to choose from in the future. Both ends, of course, of Beyond's business have been impacted by the pandemic as restaurants shuttered and consumers loaded their pantries with groceries last quarter. Grocery actually accounted for about three quarters of Beyond's U.S. revenue. Brown said Delta has created a less clear landscape for Beyond than before the pandemic hit, but its products do continue to do well in retail, and he expects that this new product will be well-received. Supply chain issues have not impacted the company or this product, he added. This is the continuation of this chicken rollout for Beyond, which launched its nuggets and trips in restaurants over the summer. Impossible Foods also launched its new chicken product made from soy protein in grocery and select restaurants. Now, Beyond Meat stock is higher, as you mentioned, by about 3% today, but down about 9% year-to-date, Kelly. Back over to you. Didn't they, Kate, just have a setback with, was it Duncan with the breakfast product? Yeah, so last quarter this came up. Uh, Brown did say that they're still working with Duncan, but it wasn't as widely available as it had been. I will note, though, in this most recent rollout of chicken, Beyond also added it was expanding its footprint, Kelly, with Walmart. So they're seeking, of course, to continue to reach, uh, to reach rather more consumers and also lower that price point uh, and eventually bring it below what traditional animal meat products would go for. True, and that would totally change the equation, I'm sure, for people who might look to substitute. Kate, thank you. Kate Rogers with the latest on the Beyond Meat, the alt meat front, as we like to call it. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.